This morning's first reading is Job 4, found on page 511. Job 4, starting at chapter 1, page 511. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil, and those who sow trouble, reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, When deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth? Between dawn and dusk, they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that that they die without wisdom? Call, if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. But if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. 
miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. Said the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue. In seven, no harm will befall you. In famine, he will ransom you from death, and in battle from the stroke of the sword. You will be protected from the lash of the tongue, and need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine, and need not fear the beasts of the earth. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's open. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel and Natasha. As they return, let's pray. Father, we pray that as we open your word, we too may this day be instructed that you may strengthen our feeble hands that the words that we read now may help support those who are stumbling and strengthen those with faltering knees. So help us apply it and live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, as I said earlier, thousands of people woke up to run the half marathon. Some have trained for the event all year, others perhaps months, some perhaps only weeks. They will run, and the thing is you're meant to keep running to the very end of the race. And we meet Job again today, running his own marathon as it were. For as we've heard, he has experienced a sudden tragedy. In one afternoon, he lost his ten children, he lost his wealth, and shortly after this he's been inflicted with a terrible skin disease and is scratching himself with pottery. And in both these tragedies, it seems he has kept his faith. He has trusted the sovereign hand of God in these things, and he has let his tears fall. The Lord gave, and the Lord will take away. Blessed.
be the name of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil also? Job, in spite of his calamity, is trusting in God. But, we read, in chapter 7, we're moving on to a little bit, verse 2, like a slave who longs for the shadows, and like a hireling who looks for wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness. Nights of misery are apportioned to me. This is Job describing the running of the marathon. This wasn't just an afternoon where everything went wrong. It seems that it's been going on and on and on, possibly weeks before his friends arrive, possibly months. And so deep within me, I don't know about you, rises a cry to God for Job and others that I know are suffering and running the marathon of suffering. How long, O Lord? Why don't you tell Satan just to back off God? Why does God not step in? Why doesn't he heal and restore Job? Why do we have to come week after week to Job, Simon, is what I've heard the cries of the congregation. Oh, Lord, how could you inflict this upon us through our servant, Simon? Can't we just rush on to chapter 42 and have done with it? It's like the idea of running the first mile of the marathon, and then suddenly this chauffeur-driven limousine comes and says, beckons you, get in, get in, I will take you the rest of the way. And you wave at the people running. You fools, you fools, you cry. Very tempting it is indeed. But it seems, we didn't ask Isabel and Tasha to read from chapter 4 to 29 this morning. But it seems that Job has much to teach us about the suffering of God, and so we press on. And last week, we heard Peter speak powerfully and beautifully of Job's and his own lament. We remember that after seven days of silence with his friends, Job opened his mouth. And there comes a point on a marathon, so I am told, you have to break through the pain barrier. Your body has to start to refuel itself in a different way, but you have to keep going. And weeks of relentless suffering and pain have taken their toll now, and Job is beginning to hit the pain barrier in a new way in verse 11 of chapter 3. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why is light given to him that is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but death does not come? And in this outburst, Job's friends come and respond. And we meet three of Job's friends, and then there are three cycles of conversations that you'll have in your home group notes. And they take the next 29 chapters. And we're looking today at what we can learn from the speeches made by the friends, not all of them, and how Job responds to them as he runs his marathon. It's as if the friends of Job are coming and running alongside him, cheering him on as people will be doing now. And the first is Eliphaz in chapter 4 and 5 that we had this morning. And the chapters that follow are a real mix, you see, of encouragement and forthrightness. As Esther said, some really challenging statements from people who are known as Job's friends. 
and sometimes friends speak truth to us. And Eliphaz doesn't trivialize Job's suffering as he comes to Job with off-the-shelf godly platitudes. No, it appears that in a dream, in one of those clear day or inspiring moments, the kind of day where you can see for miles, the Spirit of God draws aside the curtain and Eliphaz gets a glimpse of what is unseen in all this confusion of Job's suffering. And he wakes up, Aliphaz, with what seems to be a clear message from God for Job to ponder. And so Aliphaz comes and he throws out theological principles to Job like pieces of wood and says, right, come on, Job, make a raft out of these things that you may navigate these stormy waters through which you're going. And the first is, remember, Job, that God is God. If you just glance at chapter 4 and look for yourself at verses 7 to 21. 7 to 21. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the last of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Eliphaz is saying here that no man is a match for God. We are in in houses of clay, and our foundations are in the dust. But God, God, He is the almighty, powerful God. And so Job's passionate resentment, his outburst of lament, is totally out of place. How can we, mere mortal creatures of dust, vent our anger at a holy and omnipotent almighty God. Who are we to do such a thing as this? Just calm down, Job, and submit to whatever God has in mind for you, because after all, He is God and you are not. That is Eliphaz's first theological point. The second is to remember sin. I received an email from somebody this week who I knew was going through quite a rough time with being ill and their children were ill and it was like Job-like calamity had fallen upon them. And she wrote and she said, well, it is a bit like Job, but unfortunately I am not as blameless and upright as Job, for I am a sinner. 
And it's interesting the reflection that brought out. And if we are really honest, Job is what Eliphaz is saying. This suffering might have something to do with you. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it, Job. So he is saying, as I've heard said to people suffering, trouble comes to those who sin and blessing is the result of righteousness, verse 17. Can mortal man be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be pure before his maker? There's a sense of hopelessness here in who we are. We are born to trouble because of sin and because of the brokenness and sinfulness of the world. And we read from other parts of the Bible what sin is, the effect that sin has to damage personal relationships that creates a huge chasm between a holy God and our sinful selves. Even in Genesis, there is a distortion in the relationship between Adam and Eve after the fall. They don't speak to each other at all. There is no communication. And as we see going on, there is a result of mistrust and jealousy. Murder comes. Violence is done between Cain and Abel. And God crying out in the garden, where are you, Adam? Why is it that Adam is hiding? He's hiding because man and woman chose to disobey God, to rebel against him. The I wish you were dead, God, that of the prodigal to his father. And a result of this, we find ourselves lost in a wilderness and we stumble in darkness, unsure of whether we'll ever be able to get up again. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? This is what we are born into from Genesis onwards that we as Christians believe is why the world is as it is. A people in rebellion against God brings trouble and strife into the world. And we see that on our screens. We cry out for situations in Syria, in Russia, in other places that you know of, in Sudan, where terrible violence is causing immense suffering. And if only people could see this. Scott Pett wrote, life is difficult. It is difficult, isn't it? Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards in chapter 5. It's as natural as that. It's the way things are, Job, Eliphaz is saying. So just accept it and get on with it. These are just a few of the theological positions that God is God and let God be God and that we are sinful and our sin results in the brokenness of the world in which we live. And then a third point in chapter 5, verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects so do not despise the disciplining of the almighty Job. Remember discipline. Remember God is God. Remember there is sin in the world. And remember discipline. Job, Eliphaz is saying, God is putting you on a training program. He needs to prepare you. He needs to give you exercises and correct you when you do them wrong. This is for your own good. That's why all this is happening. 
You see, God, Eliphaz, is really on your side. During Lent, we may see God, keep, we may do it ourselves in keeping Lenten disciplines. Knowing that God is the one who corrects. God is the one who rebukes us. And this is the evidence, therefore, that God is caring for you. He doesn't let you just go off in your own undisciplined way in rebellion against Him. He calls you back. But what we have to get hold of here is that God is not running an impersonal experiment in holiness during Lent or at any time. He is not the laboratory worker with the white mouse in the cage going round. He is our Father who disciplines us because He loves us, who rebukes us because He longs to show us His ways, to walk in paths of righteousness that you see in Israel when you see the paths mapped out on the hills. If you wander from those paths, they said as I went on my bus and tour around, you could find yourselves with wild dogs, bandits, all kinds of trouble. So stick to the path. Be disciplined enough not to wander off, but come back and walk in the ways of God. And we see it in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 13. You can look up over lunch or while you're listening to this on the net. But as well as teaching biblical truth and theological principles, which Eliphaz is, and doing well actually, within me there is beating a pastor's heart. And so often I witness theology and truth being applied not with the skill of a surgeon with a knife, but like a sledgehammer being applied to a tottering wall. And so often our care of those who are suffering is insensitive, and it's almost too easy and too glib. You see, we are here because we don't want to run the marathon this morning. And so when things don't go better, we slowly drift away, unable to keep up, unable to keep going, when suffering keeps on going like it is for Job. We see suffering as something like an equation that needs to be balanced, rather than suffering desperately being in need of a presence, not an answer, not a solution but a presence. And Eliphaz, in his theological statements, also makes some insensitive comments to Job in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged? It strikes you, and you are dismayed? Don't you just want to cause some suffering to Eliphaz in a way at this moment? I do, because he's rebuking this man who is in agony. And he's saying, you're complaining now? You're discouraged? And to top that, in chapter 5, verse 8, he implies that Job, Job has not really sought God. But if I were you, oh, that's a great statement to make to somebody, isn't it? If I were in your shoes, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. As if Job is needing to learn from him, who has no idea at all what Job is enduring. And then it gets worse. 
If Job does this, then God will deliver him. He just needs to get back to God. He needs to follow his ways. He needs to do the Lent course. He needs to read this book, and then everything will be all right. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities, he will rescue you. In seven, no harm will touch you. How often have we heard the easy answer? Just do this and it'll all be all right. Commit your ways to the Lord. Acknowledge him in all you do and all shall be well. How dare he, Eliphaz, is what I want to say. It's too simplistic for a man in Job's position and pain. It doesn't answer the hard questions. The hard questions that even some of you are facing and facing with me, your pastor. Why do some people suffer in extraordinary ways? Why is Malcolm suffering? Why is Nigel, Maria's husband, struck down with motor neurone disease? Why, why, why? And there are others, obviously. I'm picking on two who aren't here. Why do some people suffer in extraordinary ways, even though there is no evidence that they have sinned in an extraordinary way? Well, Malcolm is here, by the way, sorry. Welcome, Malcolm. Even though there is no evidence that they have sinned in an extraordinary way, but they are, in fact, God-fearing people like Job. And so later in chapter 6, Job says to Eliphaz, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. I have, I, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. For at the beginning we are told that Job is blameless and upright and has turned away from evil. You see, a deeper response is needed to suffering. And that is our challenge as we leave today. Are we too simplistic in the face of friends we know to be suffering? Are we just applying theological truth like a sledgehammer? But we also must be sensitive to Eliphaz, for he really is trying to help. And he is present and he is there. And sometimes it's really hard to be present when someone is suffering, when you just wish you could take it away. Eliphaz has worked hard for his friend for whom he cares. And Dennis Lennon, this wise friend from the past, now himself in glory, who went through some suffering himself, writes, with traditional orthodox wisdom, Eliphaz has constructed a bridge for Job to cross over from resentment to humble submission. Surely much of what he says speaks into our own situations. However, Job's tragic experience have exposed for him the inadequacies of traditional interpretations. Job cannot trust the bridge to take him over his troubled waters. 
He is now more like a fugitive, leaping from boat to boat across a river crammed with boats, all moving in the opposite direction. I love that visual. There is no bridge. Job is leaping from boat to boat across a river, crammed with boats, all moving in opposite directions. And when we go to those we know as friends, seeking to build a bridge, we may have to stop and see where they are in trying to navigate from boat to boat that's going in every single direction on very choppy waters and no sure foundation. Yes, we must bring our theology and our truth to bear of what we know God to be and who we know God, that we do not forget in the dark what we learnt in the light and bring that light to bear, but it is how we bring it, how we bring ourselves as a presence, not a solution into that place of suffering that we must bring our heart to and hold these two things together. And mercifully this morning, we come from our sea-tossed world where we who are wearied by the chances and changes of this fleeting world and the marathons we are running with those we love and care for where there seems no let-up, we come this morning and we fling ourselves upon a life raft, offering not just hope but life itself. So I do invite you to come, to climb on board the life raft of Christ as we receive communion. Come and be rescued. Come and rest in Him. Come and see the depth of God's response to Job's suffering and your suffering, my suffering and that of the world. Come and throw yourself on the fierce mercy of God revealed in Christ and trust in Him and He will show us, He will lead us in how we bring His truth to bear and His heart that is breaking on the cross that we might know He is present with us. Amen.